to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. Strange but common. We can trust God to get us to heaven, but we have a hard time trusting Him to take care of us here on earth. Isn't that the truth? You know, we just entrust our eternal souls to Him. Oh, Lord, thank you that you saved me. We have absolute confidence that we're going to heaven. But boy, the moment anything goes wrong here on earth, we just lose faith. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Genesis. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Genesis chapters 20 through 21 in a message titled, A Lapse of Faith. Now, here's Pastor Brian. So as we pick up in chapter 20, Abraham has been dwelling in Hebron. And of course, following the historical account, we have just come through the account of the destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so after the destruction of those cities, Abraham journeyed from where he had been to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Now, we're not told why Abraham relocated at this point. He went about 50 miles south and west of where he had been, And it doesn't seem that it was that good of a move. Doesn't really say one way or the other whether or not the Lord was leading him to move. It just simply tells us that he did move. But then it says this. Now Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. So this is where things get really interesting and a bit confusing, really, because remember, this is the man of faith. This is the father of faith. Uh, This is a man who's made some mistakes, but yet recovered and seemingly up until this moment had had you know, kind of a thorough recovery from some of those early lapses of faith. He's received the promises of God. He has entered fully into the covenant that the Lord had made with him. He has had personal face-to-face conversation and communion with the Lord. And now, strangely and amazingly, we find him lapsing once again in faith. It it hardly seems possible that this kind of a thing could be repeated, but that's what we have here. Some Bible commentators say, no, no, this is just a, a repeat of what happened earlier. I don't know how they come up with that, but that's one of the theories. This is clearly a second incident 
where Abraham fails to trust God and he sort of pawns off Sarah as his sister. So this is what he does. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she, even she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants, and told all these things in their hearing. And the men were very much afraid. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I offended you that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. Then Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you have in view that you have done this thing? And Abraham said, Because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will kill me on account of my wife. But indeed, she is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And it came to pass, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, that I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me in every place wherever we go. Say of me, he is my brother. So, amazing. Abraham's lapse of faith. You know, the astounding thing is that Abraham trusted God for the extraordinary but didn't trust him in the ordinary. He trusted that God could give him a child to give a child to him and Sarah when she was 90 and he was 100 years old. He was firmly convinced that God could do that, but he didn't or somehow couldn't trust the Lord to preserve his life. It's strange, but common. Strange, but common. We can trust God to get us to heaven, but we have a hard time trusting him to take care of us here on earth. Isn't that the truth? You know, we just entrust our eternal souls to him. Oh, Lord, thank you that you saved me. We have absolute confidence that we're going to heaven But boy, the moment anything goes wrong here on earth, we just lose faith so quickly. And we begin to doubt and we begin to fear and we begin to to wonder, you know, does the Lord love me? Is he 
really with me. And so we see with Abraham, as much as he was a great man and a great man of faith, he still had these areas where there were inconsistencies. It's interesting to me that this is something that goes way, way back in his past, way back to the very beginning of the call of God. Now, now you could understand it initially, perhaps. God calls him to leave his country, to go out from his family. He's got a beautiful wife, and so he's afraid that he might be you know, killed as they would attempt to take her. And so, you know, they make this deal together. Sarah goes along with it. And you can sort of understand it a little bit at the beginning because after all, he was new in the faith and, you know, he hadn't really learned to depend on the Lord or to trust the Lord or he hadn't really, you know, come to that place of of a maturity in his faith. But it's astounding that at this stage, he would be repeating the same kinds of things. But, but it's almost like he sort of had a, a pre-programmed sort of a, a condition here or, or a pre-programmed bent toward failure. You know, this is just something that we planned. And so amazingly, he just, you know, instead of simply trusting God. Now, remember, the Lord has promised you're going to have a son He's uh, going to be your heir. I'm going to bless you, give you a multitude of descendants. You're not going to be able to number them. You know, God's told him all these things, and none of that's happened yet. Now, you would think that with all of those promises, Abraham would have just said, oh, we're going into Gerar, no problem. Don't worry about it. The Lord's going to trust us. The, Lord, uh, the Lord's going to protect us. I'm going to just have confidence in him. He's going to keep us because after all, he has to fulfill his promises to us. You would think that that's what he would do, but, you know, unbelief is rather irrational. It doesn't really make any sense. This doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But this is just, (laughs) this is just the way we are. This is human nature. And we have seen over and over in the scriptures themselves, you can see it repeated in church history, you can find it in people around you, and I would imagine you could find it right in your own life as well. You know, great feats of faith on the one hand, and then irrational moments of unbelief on the other hand. I mean, think of Elijah. What what a great example. You know, Elijah has the faith to to overcome and to defeat Ahab and and all of these prophets of Baal. And, you know, you remember the contest he has with them there on Mount Carmel. And, you know, he's so victorious and he's so full of faith. I mean, he's to the point where, you know, he's even mocking the prophets and he's mocking Baal. And he has this tremendous victory over the prophets of Baal. God comes through. You remember the story, and he answers by fire. That's what Elijah said. The God who answers by fire, let him be God. And so you read this story where Elijah just has this tremendous amount of faith and, you know, just this fantastic victory on Mount Carmel. 
They slay all of the false prophets. And there he is just in the midst of victory. And suddenly word comes to him from Jezebel of all people, the queen. And she says, God do so to me and more also if by this time tomorrow you're not like one of these prophets. And what does the great man of faith Elijah do? He runs for his life. He runs for his life. I mean, talk about inconsistency. Talk about irrationality. I mean, on the one hand, wouldn't you think that he would just say, well, you know, bring it on, Jezebel. <laughs> the Lord just gave a great victory here. I'm confident he's going to give a great victory here. But, but we see these kinds of things happen. And we ourselves at times do these things. We can trust God for extraordinary kinds of things. And then some ordinary thing comes along and we lose it. Well, as you consider this, we can all just thank God that his plan is not dependent on men. Because if that were the case, we would all be hopeless. Because there's not a man among us And, you know, here's the best of them, Abraham. I mean, he's it. He's the father of faith. And look what he's doing. And so once again, we see in this story as well, as well as the weakness and the folly and the faithlessness of man, we see the faithfulness of God. We see in this story how God overrules Abraham's folly and his faithlessness. And we see here that there are times when God will directly intervene to prevent us from messing things up. God will directly intervene. We might be going in a a certain direction, but it's the wrong direction. And and the Lord will step in. You know, we'll, we'll get to this a little bit later as we carry on in Genesis, but I think of Isaac later on. Isaac, who knew full well that Jacob was to be the one to whom the promise would pass, the blessing would come, and Isaac, knowing that because he's a weak man, because he has a preference for Esau, who cooks him better food than Jacob does, Because of of those kinds of carnal types of things, he's willing to just forfeit the whole plan of God. And he is trying to pass the blessing on to Esau instead of on to Jacob. But God circumvents it. He doesn't allow it to happen. And even later in Genesis, when Jacob is blessing the sons of Joseph. Jacob knows that that Ephraim is going to be blessed above Manasseh. And so he lays his hand on on Ephraim to, to bring that blessing. And Joseph says, no, no, he's not the firstborn. And Jacob says, oh, you're right, but he is the one. But so often we as as weak people, we will at times, in our weakness, we'll be going contrary to 
the will, the plan, the purpose of God. But again, thank God, his plan is not dependent on men. He will intervene. And that's what he does here. I mean, if this, you know, if, if God hadn't intervened, who knows what would have happened? Abraham is obviously, at this point, he's not thinking about anything but himself. He's ready to, he's ready to jeopardize the whole plan of God. Now, this, this happened evidently shortly after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was going to be within a year that Sarah would have Isaac. So it's possible that she's either not yet pregnant or she's perhaps uh, just newly pregnant. And Abraham allows her to go into a situation where the whole plan of God is, is potentially jeopardized and Sarah is potentially compromised, but we see God stepping in and dealing directly with the situation. Now, here's something that's even more astounding. What does God say to Abimelech about Abraham? He says he is a prophet, and he is going to pray for you. Now, this is probably one of the greatest demonstrations of the grace of God in all of the Bible. Because when you just look at the the story as it is, Abimelech is obviously the more righteous person in this situation. Abraham is the one who's deceiving. Abraham is the one who's not trusting God. Abraham is the one who's trying to, you know, protect himself ultimately. And Abimelech is just, you know, he's sort of an innocent victim in some ways. I like what he says in verse 10. Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you have in view that you have done this? I think to translate that into the modern vernacular, Abimelech said, Abraham, what were you thinking? That's what he's saying to him. What what did you have in view? What, what, What were you thinking to do this to us? But God... He speaks of Abraham not disparagingly. He doesn't even, you know, give any kind of a rebuke regarding Abraham to Abimelech. He simply says he is a prophet. Now, this is the first time in the scriptures that the the word prophet appears. You would think that it would have waited for a better example. (laughs) But this is the first place. But you know, there's a lesson in it. And here's the lesson, simply. God's servants are, at best, still men, and men are sinners, prone to weakness and failure. You know, we make a huge mistake when we put too much confidence in people. We make a huge mistake when we put too high of expectations upon people. And many people have been let down. Many people have been stumbled because they put too high of an expectation on a person. We have to remember this. We have to realize, and I think there's you know, a number of reasons, but I think one of the reasons why the Bible records for us all of the foibles, all of the failures, all of the faults of everybody in it 
is just to remind us that this is just the way people are. Now, it's astounding with all of those reminders over and over and over again that we still have that problem of sort of idolizing people, of sort of putting people up on a pedestal, of, you know, sort of expecting more from them than we ought to. Unfortunately, people haven't learned the lesson by just, you know, reading the scriptures. Sometimes we have to learn the lesson the hard way by putting trust in a person and then that person disappoints us. But, but we need to remember the best of men. We all have feet of clay. And at some point, you know, everybody's gonna let you down with the exception of one, and that's the Lord. The Lord won't fail you. The Lord won't let you down. That's why it's so important to keep your eyes on the Lord. Well, you get your eyes on men, you can get stumbled so quickly. But we've got to keep our eyes on the Lord. But just, you know, a couple of examples. I think you get the point, but I'll illustrate it a little further. You know, think of David. Well, let's back up a little bit. Think of Saul. Boy, to David, Saul was a hero. Saul was, uh, you know, the first king of Israel, and David certainly had a great admiration for Saul. But Saul turned out to be rotten. And you can only imagine the disillusionment that David probably went through. But then David himself. We find that David, as great of a man as he was, he had weaknesses. He had glaring faults. You know, when you study through the life of David, I mean, sometimes I look at people like Joab and guys around him, I think, those poor guys? And that was tough to be close to David. Because here's God's man, here's this great king, this great warrior, this great man of faith in so many ways, but in so many other ways, he's, he's doing all the wrong stuff so often. Of course, we know most obviously the the sin with Bathsheba and then the follow-up with Uriah. But as you follow the whole story of David, you find that so many other times as well, in his family dealings, he, he, he was a miserable disciplinarian. His family was out of control and he was relatively powerless to do, he just didn't do anything about it. So we see that with David. We think of somebody like Jonah. You know, here's a prophet who doesn't even want anybody to repent. He's disappointed that God's sending him to potentially get the Assyrians off the hook. You know, it's interesting because when you read Jonah, the reason Jonah did not go to Nineveh wasn't because he was afraid of the Ninevites, wasn't because they were, you know, they were a fierce people. It wasn't because of that. Jonah didn't go to Nineveh because he had a sneaking suspicion that if he went and preached, God might forgive them, and he didn't want that to happen. He wanted God to judge them. Let's join Pastor Brian in the studio as he shares about this month's resource. One of my favorite authors is a man named Mark Sayers, and he's written a fantastic book called A Non-Anxious Presence. And in the book, Mark talks about 
us living in a gray zone. And what he means by a gray zone is that we're living in a time between two eras. One era is passing, but the other era is not completely upon us yet. And that leads to social, cultural, and sometimes even personal disorientation. And so this book is a fantastic book that will help us keep our bearings during this time by keeping our focus on Jesus and what God is doing in the world despite what is going on around us. So a non-anxious presence is my recommendation. I know that you will be blessed by it. Again, this month's resource is a book titled, A Non-Anxious Presence, How a Changing and Complex World Will Create a Remnant of Renewed Christian Leaders by Mark Sayers. You can order the book, A Non-Anxious Presence, by going to our website, backtobasicsradio.com. Scroll down until you see the photo of it, and then click on the Donate button. When you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you the book, A Non-Anxious Presence by Mark Sayers, to give you a clear picture of how personal renewal happens after a crisis. It's our way of saying thank you for your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue next time with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Genesis. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.